You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 157, The Early War at Sea, Part 7, Graf Spey on a Rampage. This week, a big thank you goes out to Niall for choosing to support the podcast by becoming a member. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. When the last episode ended, the Admiral Graf Spey had finally gotten its commerce raiding mission underway in the South Atlantic. Working together with its supply ship, the Altmark, the Graf Spey was on a mission to sink or capture British shipping that was transiting the coast of South America and Africa. This episode begins on October 10th, 1939, as the Graf Spey had sighted the British cargo ship Huntsman. The Graf Spey signaled the Huntsman to stop, and as soon as that signal was received, the radio officer on the Huntsman began sending the same raider warning transmission over the radio that some of the previous ships had also sent as the Graf Spey bore down on them. As soon as this started, another signal was received from the Graf Spey that unless the radio transmissions ended immediately, the Graf Spey would open fire. The merchant crew made the reasonable choice to end the transmission. An armed boarding party was sent across from the Graf Spey, which ordered the crew of the Huntsman to follow the Graf Spey and to conform to the German ship's movements. This type of arrangements was something that was only really possible in the large expanses of the southern Atlantic. Anywhere closer to Europe, the ship just would have been sunk due to how quickly the ships of the Royal Navy could arrive. And again, because they completely understood that they were at the mercy of the Graf Spey and its guns, the crew of the Huntsman followed as ordered. Due to the fact that the Huntsman had managed to send several radio signals about the presence and actions of the Graf Spey, the captain of the Graf Spey, Longsdorf, made the decision to also send a radio signal to Berlin. This was standard operating procedure for the German ships. The radio signals that Longsdorf sent could be used by British radio direction-finding equipment to pinpoint the position of the Graf's Bay. But, if the Huntsman had already transmitted that position, then it didn't really matter. In fact, the British would not receive or gain any information from any of these signals. Longsdorf was also able to gain some critical information from the Huntsman. The secret documents on board the Huntsman, which should have been destroyed as soon as the German cruiser was spotted, were not. And so Longsdorf was able to learn more about how the British were hunting for him. Instead of sending lone cruisers along the trade routes, as Longsdorf expected the British to do, he learned that instead the Royal Navy was focusing on larger groups of ships positioned at specific choke points, like the Cape of Good Hope or Rio de la Plata and even Gibraltar. 
This gave Longsdorf a bit more information about where he could operate and how he could operate and how he could expect the British to respond to his actions. After the capture of the Huntsman, the Graf Spee would meet up with the Altmark once again to replenish. As this was being completed, Longsdorf needed to take care of another problem that he had, the number of prisoners that were piling up on the Graf Spee. For all the ships that had been captured or sunk so far, the crews had been evacuated and placed on board the Graf Spee. But this was not a long-term solution, especially as the number of prisoners continued to grow. The Graf Spee was a warship, and it was not designed to hold a large number of prisoners. And so Longsdorf wanted to transfer them to the Altmark and ordered the captain of the Altmark, Dow, to work out accommodations for them. Now, of course, the Altmark was also not designed to hold large numbers of prisoners, but it was a bit easier to find space aboard the Altmark, especially as the previous six weeks at sea had drew down its supplies a little bit, making room. And so the prisoners were transferred over to the Altmark, and they would spend the next several months stuck on board the ship in far from optimal conditions. Just as a preview, these prisoners will be important, and the Altmark will return to the podcast after these episodes are over due to the role that it would play in the start of the Norwegian campaign. Yes, that Norway, thousands of miles away from the Altmark's current location and in the early months of 1940. Don't worry, we'll get there. Also, while the replenishment was underway and while the prisoners were finding their new home on the Altmark, the Graf Spee's engineers were very busy. After about six weeks at sea, the Graf Spee had a problem with its diesel engines. They were still working, but they were becoming less reliable, and so there was a full overhaul of the engines during this time. Basically, they did the maximum amount of work that could be done on them while at sea and away from port, but the hope was that this would help them to make them more reliable in the weeks ahead. There was also another problem around the refrigeration system on board the Graf Spee. A lot of thought had went into what kinds of supplies and, and how much of each needed to be on board the Altmark to support both the ships in their actions, but a mistake had been made, and there was not enough carbolic acid, which was a critical part of how the refrigeration system on board the Graf Spee functioned. It did not help that the refrigeration units were also having some problems, which increased how quickly they used up their carbolic acid. When the challenges with both the diesel engines and the refrigerators were considered, Longsdorf believed that he would have to make it back to Germany in January 1940, or it would probably never happen. Just because he knew a rough date on when his mission would end did not mean he did not continue to pursue that mission during the intervening time, and so he began to plan his next raiding area, with the choice being to target the trade routes along the coast of southwest Africa. On October 22nd, even before reaching the African coast, the Graf Spee came upon the Trevanian, a 5,300-ton steamer loaded down with ore. The same signals were sent from the Graf Spee to stop, prepare to be boarded, and most importantly not to send any radio signals or the Graf Spee would open fire. These signals were received and completely ignored. Captain Edwards of the Trevanian ordered the Trevanian's radio operator to continue sending the RRR surface radar signal, along with the ship's current position. These signals were detected by the Graf Spee, and so Longsdorf ordered the 20mm cannons to open fire on the Trevanian, which they did. Undeterred, Edwards ordered the young radio officer to continue sending the signal, and so he did, until the ship was boarded and the signals were ended. The crew was brought on board the Graf Spee, and the Trevanian was sent to the bottom of the ocean with explosive charges. Afterwards, the Graf Spee met up with the Altmark again to transfer the new prisoners. 
At this point, Longsdorf had a choice to make. His goal had been to make for the trade routes along the southwestern African coast and then towards the Cape of Good Hope. But the assumption had to be made that the prolonged signals from the Trevanian had been received by someone somewhere, and those had been relayed back to the British, and so British warships might now be expecting him to do exactly what he had been planning to do. This meant that a change of plan was in order, and so Longsdorf hoped to confuse the British by sailing into the Indian Ocean. The Altmark would make for the far South Atlantic away from any shipping routes to wait for the return of the Grass Bay from its stint in the Indian Ocean. The plan was never to stay for a long period of time in the Indian Ocean, only to make his ship's presence there known to the British to confuse them before the Grafs Bay would double back into the Atlantic to continue to attack the trade routes. Longsdorf believed that this could be accomplished in only around two weeks, and so rendezvous plans were made with the Altmark. The two ships would part and the Grafs Bay would make its way around the Cape and then head north into the Indian Ocean. On November 9th, the Grafs Bay had moved far enough north to begin its hunt in earnest, and the Arado float plane was flown off to begin scouting ahead. Much like the Grafs Bay, the Arado was having some engine problems. The float plane was already using the only spare engine that had been brought on the cruise, with the first being put out of action due to mechanical problems. But now, the new engine was developing cracks in the engine block. It was still functional for the moment but it was really only a matter of time before the cracks worsened to the point where it could no longer fly. The Graf Spay's new hunting grounds were also just not very lucrative, at least for several days as the Graf Spay moved north. Only two ships would be spotted while the Graf Spay was in the Indian Ocean. One of these was a small Dutch steamer, which was encountered when the seas were so rough that Longsdorf decided not to board it, although it would be stopped for a brief period. The other was the small British tanker, the Africa Shell, which the Graf's Bay did sink. After these two ships, Longsdorf decided that he'd accomplished his goal of appearing in the Indian Ocean, and he began to make his way back around the Cape. Another important part of the Indian Ocean raid is that during these actions, Longsdorf had removed the disguises that his men had put in place earlier in their crews, where they had done their best to make the Graf's Bay look like the Admiral Scheer, one of the other Deutschland-class cruisers. While in the Indian Ocean, the changes to the Graf Space superstructure had been removed, and the obfuscation of the ship's name had also been changed. The goal was to make the British think that the Admiral Shear was in the Atlantic and the Graf Spay was in the Indian Ocean. Then on the way back to the Atlantic, a further deception was put in place. Longsdorf ordered his men to add a dummy funnel and a dummy third gun turret, both out of canvas and wood. The goal with these changes was not to look like another Deutschland-class cruiser, but instead to make the Graf's Bay appear to be a British battlecruiser, specifically the HMS Renown. Changes were also made to the superstructure, and paint was used to bring the ship into line with the same type of grey that the British used for the Renown. These type of disguises would never fool the Royal Navy, but they were not designed to. All Longsdorf needed was to fool the captains and radio officers of merchant ships long enough for their radio signals to be confusing. It would take six days for the new disguises to be put in place while the Graf Spay made its way to the pre-planned rendezvous with the Altmark in the South Atlantic. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. On November 26th, the two ships, the Graf Spey and the Altmark, met once again, and the supplies began to be transferred and the hose was ran over to begin their refueling. The Graf Spey had been at sea since before the start of the war, and had traveled more than 30,000 miles, or almost 50,000 kilometers, and Longsdorf had decided that it was time to start making its way back to Germany. It would not take the direct route, though, and instead Longsdorf informed his officers that they would make their way up the western coast of Africa, and then west across the Atlantic to South America before making their way north, aiming to find a few more British merchant ships, and if things went very well, they would make their way to the areas off Rio de la Plata, where it was likely that the hunting grounds would be very lucrative. Along with the announcement of the ship's course, there was a critical change to the operating procedures for the Graf's Bay for the remainder of its time in the South Atlantic. Up until the 24th of November, the Graf's Bay had been operating under the orders that it was to avoid British warships at all costs, even if the Graf Spey was heavily favored in an engagement, say one cruiser or even just a destroyer, they were supposed to run away. But that was now changing, and instead Longsdorf informed his officers that if they encountered a British warship, then the odds were favorable, or even if the odds were even, they would engage. This was a major change, and really went against the orders that had been given to the ship on how to execute its mission. But with the decision made by Longsdorf, the other officers were sort of along for the ride. With this decision made, it was time for some more commerce hunting. And as the Graf Spey was steaming north off the coast of Namibia, a ship came into view, the 10,000-ton British steamer, the Doric Star. The Doric Star was on its way from Australia back to Europe. Up until the sighting of the Doric Star, the Graf Spey had generally started any interaction with merchant ships by radioing the ship to stop and to not use its wireless or it would be fired upon. Instead of following this template, Longsdorf ordered warning shots to be fired from long range, and immediately the ship started to send the standard raider distress calls. The initial reaction of the captain of the Dork Star was to try and run away, ordering the engine room to provide all possible speed, but it was very quickly becoming clear that this was not a viable option. This was a merchant ship. That was a warship. The captain would later write, quote, After the second shot, it was impossible to escape. So I stopped the engines and ordered the wireless operator to amplify the message and state battleship attacking. By this time, I could read the daylight Morris lamp from the battleship signaling stop your wireless, but I took no notice. 
After the distress calls had been transmitted, I ordered the wireless operator to cease transmitting as the fast-approaching battleship was exhibiting a notice, Stop your wireless or I will open fire. Unlike the previous ships that the Graf Spey had attacked, the engineers on the Doric Star were able to damage the engines, which meant that its speed was slow enough that the Graf Spey had to make the decision to either sink it or leave very quickly. The information provided by the crew made it seem like the ship was just carrying a cargo of wool, a completely reasonable cargo from such a ship as the wool from Australia and New Zealand was a common import into the home islands. But this was not all that it carried, and instead it also had a large amount of meat and dairy products, which is one of the things that the Graf Spey was very short of. They would never learn of this, though, because Longsdorf was in a hurry. Not only was there concerns of British warships that might have received the report of the attack and were moving to intercept, a radio message had also arrived that the Arado float plane that had been on scouting duty had run out of fuel and was sitting on the ocean with a damaged float, which meant that you know, it needed to be gathered up quite quickly. The crew of the Doric Star were given 10 minutes to gather their things before torpedoes were fired at the merchant ship, sending it under the waves. The Graf Spey would quickly make its way to the location of the float plane and then evacuate the scene of the crime as quickly as possible. The next ship that would be attacked by the Graf Spey was the Tyroa on December 3rd. At this point, Longsdorf was losing his patience with these merchant ships and ordered that as soon as any wireless transmission from the ship was intercepted, the firing would start. Of course, the Tyroa began a radio transmission, and therefore the shells started falling, with the Graf Space secondary fire hitting the Tyroa's upper works. Again, the crewmen of the merchant ship were given just a few minutes to gather what they needed, and then they were back on the Graf Spey, and the Tyroa was fired on by a torpedo and the Graf Spey's secondary 5.9-inch guns. Once the ship was sinking, the Graf Spey moved away from the scene this time for a longer trip because it was at this point that Longsdorf ordered the ship to head west across the Atlantic, with the intention of moving against British shipping off the South American coast. On December 6th, the Graf Spey and the Altmark met again for what would be the final time, as the 144 men captured from the Doric Star and the Tyroa were transferred over to the Altmark. Then the two ships would part and the Graf Spey would make for the South American coast, and by December 12th, they would be 150 miles off the coast of Brazil, ready to begin hunting another round of merchant ships. For what will very soon become an obvious reason, at this point it is critical that we discuss what had been happening among the British cruisers that had been tasked with guarding the South American coast against German commerce raiders. On board the Royal Navy cruiser Ajax, Commodore Henry Harwood was very quickly going to have his date with Destiny, but he did not really know exactly when or where it would happen. Over the previous weeks, the reports of the Tyroa and the Doric Star had been forwarded to him, because his force of cruisers, known as Force G, were best positioned to do something about it. They were stationed off the South American coast, and the force consisted of the Exeter, a light cruiser with 6-inch guns, the Achilles and the Ajax, two heavy cruisers with 8-inch guns, and then the Cumberland, also armed with 6-inch guns. On December 3rd, these cruisers were spread out a little bit, as they were generally patrolling for German ships that could be on the loose, although it was still at least a little unclear if the Graf Spey or the Admiral Scheer or whatever it was, was off the South American coast or if it was still over in Africa. Due to concerns that the German ship might be on its way, Harwood ordered his three available cruisers to come together at a rendezvous point about halfway between Montevideo and Rio de Janeiro. One of the cruisers, the Cumberland, 
would not be available for several more days, as it was at that moment on its way to the Falkland Islands for a brief refit. Because of the limited number of ships that Harwood had under his command, just three cruisers, and the fact that he needed at least two of them together if he wanted to make a serious attempt at stopping the Graf's Bay, he had to try and guess where he would meet Longsdorf and his ship, because he could really only be in one spot at a time. I do not have Harwood's notes from before the action against the Graf's Bay, but here is a quote from his dispatch after the sinking of the Graf's Bay on why he chose to move his ships to the River Platte, which would end up being the perfect position for them to be in because that's where the Graf's Bay was going. Harwood would say, quote, The British ship Doric Star had reported being attacked by a pocket battleship in position 19 degrees 15 minutes south, 5 degrees 5 minutes east, during the afternoon of 2nd December 1939, and a similar report had been sent by an unknown vessel, which was the Tyroa, 170 miles southwest of that position at 5 a.m. on the 3rd of December. From this data, I estimated that at a cruising speed of 15 knots, the raider could reach the Rio de Janeiro focal area on the morning of December 12th, the River Platte on the afternoon of December 12th, or the early morning of the 13th, and the Falkland Islands on the 14th of December. I decided that the Platte, with its large number of ships and its very valuable grain and meat trade, was the vital area to be defended. I therefore arranged to concentrate there my available forces in advance of the time at which it was anticipated the raider might start operations in that area. End quote. With the goal of gathering his ships off the River Platte as soon as possible, the orders were distributed to all of the ships. The Cumberland was already almost at the Falklands, and so it was told to just continue, but the orders were to keep half of its propulsion ready as much as possible, for as long a time as possible. This order was important because the ship was in port for a boiler cleaning, which often meant shutting down all the boilers for an extended period. But this would mean that if the Cumberland was needed, it would have to take the time to bring its boilers back up before it could leave port. With half of its boilers always available, it would be easier for the ship to leave port as quickly as possible while the other boilers were, were brought up to speed. When the three available cruisers met, that's the Exeter, the Ajax, and the Achilles, Harwood distributed his orders, quote, My policy with three cruisers in company versus one pocket battleship. Attack at once by day or night. By day, act as two units, 1st Division, Ajax, and Achilles, and 2nd Division, Exeter, diverged to permit flank marking. 1st Division will concentrate gunfire, end quote. With the three ships together, just after 6 a.m. on December 13th, smoke was spotted on the horizon. The lookouts on the Graf Spey spotted the British ships at roughly the same time, believing that it was one cruiser and two destroyers. Aboard the Graf's Bay, Longsdorf ordered the ship to be put on an intercept course with the intention of engaging the British warships. Aboard the Ajax, Harwood made a similar decision. The four ships started at around 31,000 meters distant from one another, but soon that distance was closing very rapidly. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week for part three of the adventures of the Admiral Graf's Bay, which will end on a disappointing note for the German cruiser. <laughs>